Take your copy of God's Word and turn to 1 Peter chapter 2. And did we enjoy my friends Greg and Jana this evening? Praise the Lord for them. We're grateful to have them be with us today. And let's begin in with a word of prayer. Would you pray with me? Father in heaven, thank you for this day. Thank you for the goodness of this day. And Father, thank you for Jesus, uh, because he is the reason that we are here. And Father, we celebrate with those 35 who were baptized last weekend. We celebrate with Ryland and her family as she took that step of faith today. And Father, we pray for the others in this room that need to take that step of faith, whether it is to give their life to Christ or to take that next step of baptism. Father, we pray that your Holy Spirit would move tonight. And Lord, we pray for those watching online. We thank you for them. We pray a blessing on them. In Jesus' name, amen. 1 Peter chapter 2 and verse number 4. Would you stand as we read God's word? 1 Peter chapter 2, and we'll begin in verse number 4. Um, and those of you watching online, welcome. Scripture says, as you come to him, a living stone rejected by men, but in the sight of God, chosen and precious, you yourselves like living stones are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood to offer spiritual sacrifices accepted to God through Jesus Christ. For it stands in Scripture, Behold, I am laying in Zion a stone, a cornerstone, chosen and precious, and whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. So the honor is for you who believe, but for those who do not believe, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone and a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. They stumble because they disobey the word as they were destined to do. But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people of his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh, which wage war against your soul. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. You may be seated. Uh, who am I. Virtually every action of our lives is an attempt to answer that question, who am I? We hear people in our society say things like, know yourself, be yourself, stay true to yourself. And these are self-evident truths in our post-modern society. Our world is enamored um, with the focus on the self, which has led to expressive individualism. Carl Truman, in his book, The Rise and Triumph of the Modern Self, defines expressive individualism as this. Expressive individualism refers to the idea that in order to be fulfilled, to be an authentic person, to be genuinely me, I need to be able to express outwardly or perform publicly that which I feel I am on the inside. And so if I feel like I'm this on the inside, I have to express it on the outside. So Truman continues, so the most authentic individual, the most real person is the person who expresses or performs outwardly that which they feel inwardly. So according to postmodern world, it's not what God's word says about me. It's what I say about me. And, and therefore I am who I am. And so who are you to ever question who I am? But here's the issue. We have more identity confusion in our society than ever before in the history 
of humanity. People just don't know who they are. So, so rather than maybe asking the question, who am I? Maybe the better question for us this evening would be this, whose am I? I mean, what if, what if, if you would just go with me, what, what if we found our identity not in what I say that I am, but on what God says that I am? What if I found my identity is, is greater in Christ than anything that I say that it is? What if the greatest need I have is for someone outside of myself to tell me who I really am? And what if, just what if, life is more than just about me? Peter is writing to new believers who are living in Asia Minor and they're struggling to live out their identity as a stranger in the world. What we know and what Peter tells us, the Bible teaches us and what we've seen in church history is that living for Jesus is hard, amen? It's hard. It's not just countercultural. it's counterintuitive. And so these Christians were people who had been born again and now were given a new identity in Christ. And with this new identity, they were living in a society without status, without honor, and without any home in this world. And so Peter is encouraging them to hold on to and embrace their identity in Jesus. And I want you to understand, church, that's what we need. We need to hold on to and embrace our identity in Jesus Christ. And so Peter's going to teach us this evening this that we believers are a gospel community with a holy calling built on Christ, our cornerstone. Let's unpack that sentence this evening. We are, I am, you all are, if you're in Christ, a gospel community. In verse four, he says, as you come to him. What we were looking at last week, we saw that we were newborn infants that longed for the spiritual milk, the word of God. And so you would assume that he would say in verse four that as you come to him for a drink, but no, that's not what he says. He says, as you come to him, well, who is the him? He's the Lord that is good. But now he's going to change things up. He's going to say, as you come to him, a living stone. How do you get milk from a living stone? I don't recommend you milk rocks this week. How does this work? Well, Peter here is changing metaphors, but something came to his mind as he was writing this. The Holy Spirit inspired him. And so he begins to move how we should not be people known by our maliciousness and our hypocrisy and our deceit, but we should be people that are different. And so as we come to him, because we've tasted that he is good, this one that we come to is a living stone. He says, rejected by men, but chosen by God. Hold to that thought in a moment. We're going to unpack it. But this is a metaphor about Jesus that even Jesus himself gave to himself. So for those of you who want to look into this, Matthew 21, 42, Jesus gives the parable of the tenants and he talks about sending out into the field. Uh, the guy sent out his servants and the, the bad people killed him. And then they sent another servant and they killed him and, and another servant and they killed them. And finally he sent his son and guess what they did to him? They killed him too. And Jesus says, it's like him. He's this cornerstone that the builders rejected. And so what we learn is that Jesus, a, a, a metaphor for him is he's a living stone. And that is that Jesus is the center and the foundation of our relationship with God and other believers. Jesus is not a dead stone. He's a living savior. Therefore, he is a living stone. He's not a rolling stone. So as you come to him, a living stone, and then now he says that you yourself, if you are a Christian, you yourself are a living stone. Just as Jesus was rejected and chosen by God, we are rejected and chosen by God as well. 
So Peter here is switching metaphors, going from being in the family of God to now being a part of the building of God. And so those who come to Jesus by faith, born again, have become living stones. He's the living stone, and we are living stones. And then he says that we are being built up as a spiritual house. And so you are a stone. You are a brick. Each believer in this room and each believer in all of the world is a brick built upon other bricks that make up a spiritual house, a temple where the Holy Spirit of God dwells. Now, let's just talk about this. And, and some of you, I know that maybe you're new to church. You're like, what in the world is he talking about? Just hold on with me. In the Old Testament, God brought his people, Israel, out of Egyptian bondage by a mighty hand and by his grace. And what he did is he made them a nation. He made them a covenant community. So on Mount Sinai, he gave them his, uh, his commandments. He, he gave them this covenant. And, and what he did is instead of dealing with people individually, he dealt, he dealt with them in the community. And, and in doing so, his presence dwelt among his people. Just as we saying that blessing, that is that ironic blessing that speaks of God's presence with his people. And so they, the, the people of God were instructed to build the tabernacle, which would be a portable temple, where the presence of God would move with the people of God. And so God's people under a covenant community would have the presence of God and the spirit of God moving amongst the people of God. And so they would experience this in the tabernacle. But in time, God would command and lead King Solomon to construct a permanent structure, a temple in Jerusalem. Now, here's something interesting. If you're taking notes, I would pay attention to this. The temple was a place where God met with his people. The temple was a place where God's rule was displayed to the world. The temple was a place where sacrifice and atonement was made. It was the only place in all the world where God's presence dwelt, where God's rule was displayed, and where sacrifice was made. And so everything was going honky-dory until the exile, where the Babylonians came in and destroyed the temple. And so the people of God are now without the temple of God. And so the prophets prophesied that one day God would restore God's people. They had fallen into sin and they had compromised their lives. And so he promised them that one day God would raise up a new temple. And so Jesus would walk into the scene and there would be this temple constructed by Herod. But, but it wasn't the temple that the prophets were prophesying about. Jesus would say this. He said, destroy this temple in three days, I'll rise it up. The Bible says that he was speaking about his own body. And guess what happened? Jesus, the temple of God, was destroyed, but three days later rose from the dead. Amen? Amen. And so what Jesus did is he took the temple from being a building at one place, at one time, in one location, to a person. Are you all tracking with me this evening? And so what Jesus did is he made the temple personal. No longer a physical structure, but a physical person. So Jesus is the new temple. He is the place where God meets with his people. Emmanuel, God with us. He is the one to whom God's rule is displayed to the world. He is the king. And he is where final atonement was made. He is the Lamb of God that takes away the sins of the world. And so he's that living stone. And those who are now united to him, 
Peter's going to say, and Paul will say, if you are united, if you are saved, if you are connected to Jesus, you are a temple of God. Stay with me. This is good. Because the temple is where God's spirit dwells, his rules displayed, and atonement was made. So if you are a Christian, you are where God's spirit dwells. You are where his rule is displayed. And you are where his final atonement is applied. So you and I are where God's spirit indwells us, his rules displayed through us, and where atonement is given to us. Paul says this in 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 16. Do you not know that you're God's temple and that God's spirit dwells in you? Chapter 6, verse 19. Or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit with, within you, whom you have from God? You are not your own. You are bought with a price, so glorify God in your body. This is God's temple. You are God's temple. Here's the thing. In the Old Testament, God had a temple for his people. But in the New Testament, God has a people for his temple. And he says that we, in our union with him, are connected to him, and we are being built up. This is a passive voice. So this is an action done to us, not by us. Jesus says, I will build my church. And so Jesus is building a spiritual house brick by brick. And so God not only lives in us individually, because you are a temple of God, but he also lives within us corporately. We are the temple of God. And so the church of Jesus Christ is God's new temple. Now, again, if this is your first time coming to church, you're like, what is he talking about? Stay with me. Here's what you got to understand. Each individual church is a small section of the wall on the temple of God that God has been building up throughout the whole world for centuries. And you and I are being built up and built upon those who have gone on before us, and we are being built around those other believers around us. And so God is building his church from every tribe, every tongue, every nation throughout the generations. And so what this tells us, church, is this. You and I are not built together independent of each other. We are built together, interdependent upon each other. In other words, we need each other. So God has called all believers to live in a local gospel covenant community. If you are a Christian, you are called to be a part of a local church where you make promises to one another, where you serve one another, and where you're on mission together with one another. Christianity is not an individual sport. And, and here's why. There's something special that happens when we gather as a church on mission together. When we commit to each other, when we gather with each other, when we serve together, we see God's presence, his glory, and his power. And so what I believe this teaches us, if you look at the whole of Scripture, is it means that there is a glory, a power, and a presence of God that is only available to you in and through the gathered church that's not otherwise available to you. There's just something special about gathering. You know, if you and I are in a fight, I got one of two options. Physically, I can poke you or I can punch you. 
I never have seen anybody that I know do a lot of hard damage with a poke. I mean, maybe some of you have been poked to death. I don't know. I've never seen Florida man poked to death by somebody else. But there's a fist, and there's just something more that a punch can do than a poke can do. The same is true here. Individually, we may be able to poke the darkness, but together we can punch the darkness. Individually, we may poke into the mission of God, but together we can punch with the mission of God. Now, let me just give you some examples of this. Just think about it in, in this form of worship. Individually, you can worship God. You can have a great Spotify playlist, and you can listen to a lot of great podcasts. But there just seems to be something deeper, something better by singing, by sharing, by hearing God's word with other people. Why is that? Because God's glory inhabits the community. It just does. You know, I never will forget a few years ago, somebody came to my office. A lady came to my church, came to the office, wanted to talk to me. And she said, Pastor, I just want you to know that I can get good preaching online. I said, okay. She said, I can get great singing online, but there's one thing I can't get online or on a podcast. I can't get the community. You know, some people think, you know what? I'm just going to find somebody I like. I'm just going to get that guy's sermons. I'm going to download it on a podcast. I can listen to it in my car. I can listen while I'm working out. And I can get just as much out of what that dude says than, 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 than I would at church. Or there's some people say, you know what? I'll just come every now and again to church, listen to that guy every now and again, get in. But I'm not going to join the church. I'm not going to get committed to the church. I, I, I'll be just as good if I just kind of do my thing when I want to do it. Well, I want you to hear something. That's not in the Bible. We're not just individual bricks just bricking along. We are meant for each other. And when the church is gathered, God shows up. And, you, you know, we never know when he's going to show up. We never know when he's going to break out. We never know when he's going to show out and manifest his presence. You know, there was a day that Isaiah went to church, Isaiah the prophet, and he went to church. He, he went to church a lot. He went to the temple a lot. But there was one time that he went to the temple that God's presence came down and Isaiah saw the Lord and his train filled the temple and his life was changed forever. So what I'm teaching you is this. Don't miss church. Don't miss it. This isn't a legalistic thing. This is life. Don't miss church. Tim Keller says the church is not just one more human institution. It's the only one that Jesus Christ started that is inhabited by the Spirit and the glory of God. You know, in the upper room, the Apostle Thomas missed a meeting. He missed church. And guess what happened? Jesus showed up. And so what is the moral of that story? Don't miss church because you never know when Jesus may show up and show out. I was talking to Greg and Jana before the message or before the service this evening. And one of the things that Greg said, and I love their worshiping heart, he says, you know, there's just something special that God does on the weekend. He says those 75 minutes meeting each weekend with the people of God in the house of God can change your week and your life forever. I'm glad to be a part of First Baptist Church of Naples. Are you? I love my church. Amen. 
I love being with y'all. That's what we say in North Florida. Y'all. I don't know what y'all say down here in South Florida. Hey, you guys. I don't know. I love y'all. And here's what we got to understand. Our church's competition is not the church down the road. Our church's competition is not a new church plant. You know what we're competing with? We're competing with the bed. We're competing with the beach. We're competing with the ball game. We're competing with the big mouse in Orlando. And sadly, people are putting a greater priority on being a part of those things than being with God's people. But you are, if you are a Christian, you are a gospel community. Your identity is wrapped up in the community of God. So, Peter says, you are a gospel community. We are living stones built upon the living stone. But we are a gospel community with a holy calling. Verse nine, but. He's contrasting there. We'll talk about that contrast in a moment. But you are. The gospel community is made up of people who are, and so read the following, a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, and a prized possession. It's not who the world says you are. It's not who you say you are, but it's who God says you are that matters. These new believers were experiencing the pain and humiliation of a hostile culture around them. Just like Jesus, they were rejected by men. They didn't fit. They were irrelevant nobodies. They, they, they were almost like the land of misfit toys. They were hated by the world. And that may be you. If you live for Jesus, not everybody's going to love you. You may feel like you don't fit. You may feel like a nobody. You're rejected by men, but you're not rejected by God. Because we, like Jesus, because of Jesus, may be rejected by men, but we are chosen and precious to God. Listen to me. God has a tendency of picking a nobody to become somebody in front of everybody without asking anybody. And God has set you, if you are a Christian, apart and has given every believer in this room and watching online a holy calling to be a light to the nations. If we had time, we would dissect how Peter parallels this with Exodus chapter 19, verses 3 through 6, but we don't have time. But let's just walk through who we are, and that'll help us know what we're supposed to do. We are a chosen race. Race is a huge topic in our society. Critical race theory is a hot-button issue. Uh, it is a, a critical theory, and critical race theory is a theory in which everything is viewed through the lens of race and racism. One of the ways that it is, teaches uh, how to deal with racism is with racism. And I think if you deal with racism with racism, that doesn't seem to be a good idea, right? And so if some of you are wondering, I'm not woke, But, Siri, hush. She was up here talking. I was afraid she might say something counter what I just said. But in Christ, being a chosen race is not black or white or brown. Stay with me. The chosen race is a new people from all the peoples, colors and cultures, who are now strangers in this world, 
but no strangers to Christ. What gives us our identity is not our color or our culture. Those things are, those things are not irrelevant. God is not colorblind. God created color. God created culture. And I am thankful he has done that. But our identity is not in the pigment of our skin, nor the culture of our life, but on our chosenness. Christians are not the white or the brown or the black race, but we are the chosen race. Out from all the races, one at a time, not on the basis of anything special in and of ourselves. Notice he says you are a chosen race, not a choice race. God did not choose you because you were special. But we are special because God chose us. Our identity is in the fact that we are chosen. God chose us not based on our goodness or our greatness or our race or our gender, nationality, or any other qualification. God chose us in Christ by grace. And this is why Christianity is the most inclusive, exclusive community the world has ever known. Because the gospel produces the most racially, socioeconomically, culturally diverse community that, that has ever existed in humanity. And we have to understand that we can only be right in God's sight by having Christ's righteousness given to us. We are not accepted by any other thing. We have no other argument. We have no other plea. Only by God's grace. And therefore, whosoever will may come, regardless of your past, regardless of your problems, regardless of your lack of potential in the future, you can come to Jesus. Because you... If you're in Christ, you're a chosen, chosen race. Secondly, a royal priesthood. Now, this is a neat thing here, a kingly priest. One thing in the Old Testament, if you're not familiar with this, the Old Testament forbade, I think that's a word, forbids, well, y'all grammar folks can fix that in a moment, but a king couldn't be a priest and a priest couldn't be a king. And so this is a radical idea. Now, earlier he's called us holy priest. Here's the thing. In ancient times, people believed that human beings were here and divine beings were there. So all throughout history, there has been this gap. And everybody knew there was a gap. And there was a gap between humanity and the divine. And so there had to be a bridge to get to, for humans to meet the divine. And so how the ancients bridged the gap between the divine and the human was through spiritual elites. And so for you to come to God or whatever God you believed in, you had to go to the temple because that's the holy place. And you had to go to the priest because that's the holy person. And this priest was knowledgeable of the things of the God. And so you would have to go to the holy place and see the holy priest who would mediate your relationship with the divine. And for centuries, that was the mindset of all people, regardless of your religion. Because we understand there's a gap. Even ancient Israel had prophets, priests, and kings. They had spiritual elites. And, and so we have this same thought in our hearts. We know that there's a gap. Every one of us are born knowing that there's a gap, that there's a God that we may not know, the God we may not understand, and then there's us. Because we look in the mirror and we don't necessarily like what we see. And so what happens, even people that are Christians, we even subconsciously will look to a pastor, look to a church leader to bridge the gap. 
And we think that because that is a holy man or a holy woman, that that person, because of their knowledge of who God is, will bring us closer to God. And so we latch upon these men and women, either pastors or church leaders or whoever, we latch upon them the spiritual elite status. And so what happens when pastors leave, when pastors retire, when pastors fail morally, people are devastated because subconsciously they believe that now they have lost their access to God. But what Peter is saying here is this, if you are a believer, you have access to God. You can live in service to God and you can make intercession on behalf of others and you don't have to go to and you don't have to go through anyone to get to God. You can get to God on your own through Jesus. You don't need me. You don't need any pastor. You don't need Mary. Why? Jesus had to save Mary. Mary didn't save Jesus. Jesus saved Mary. And I'm not going to pray to somebody that needs saving I want to pray to somebody who saves. Y'all got me fired up. (laughs) Kentucky starts at 730. I got to hurry up. Come on. And so we're priests. You're a priest. And you can get married. Praise God. Let's just pray and close this sucker out. Here we go. And because of that, we can offer acceptable sacrifices. We can offer sacrifices of praise and worship and love and thanksgiving because they're accepted in Jesus, who's our great high priest. We're a chosen race. We're a royal priesthood, a holy nation. I love America. Y'all love America? I love America. But I hold a higher allegiance, and that's the kingdom of God. And so as a Christian, I am a part of a new nation within this nation and among the nations. Now, a nation has laws, culture, justice, way of life, and values. The church and believers are an embassy to the world and in the world. An embassy represents one country to another. So we, as a part of the kingdom of God, are distinct from the world, but yet we live in the world. Even though this world isn't our home, we still live here because we represent the king and we represent the kingdom. Here, Peter wants us to understand that we are a holy nation and therefore our ultimate allegiance is not to the nation we live in, but to the nation that we are going to. That doesn't mean you should hate your country. doesn't mean you shouldn't support your country. doesn't mean you shouldn't pay your, your taxes or salute your flag. But what it does mean is this, this world isn't your home. Because we are a people of his own possession. Now, in the King Jimmy, it says peculiar people. In other translations, it can be a prized possession. What he says here is that you are treasure, not trash. You're wanted and loved. And so, so here's what we get. Our identity is what the most important person in our life thinks about you. So your, your sense of self-worth, your sense of self-esteem is really dependent upon the person you esteem the most speaking into your life. And so if, you, if the person you love the most is your wife or your husband, what they think about you matters the most. If it's, what you're, if it's your kids, and what they think about you is what matters most. If it's somebody you work with or if it's your peers or colleagues, what they think about you is what matters most. And here's what happens. When we look 
to our spouse or our kids or our friends or our peers or our colleagues to give us our identity, we're never going to get what we need. But here's what you have to understand, that if you are a Christian, you are known and loved by the one whose opinion is the only opinion that matters. All right? You're not our happy group. All right, so that's what we are. We are a gospel community given a holy calling, but he ain't done yet. So that. So that we may proclaim the excellencies. We may proclaim the excellencies of him who called us out of darkness into light. We have been given a holy calling to declare his praise. His goodness, his awesome need, deeds to the nations. You weren't just saved to sit sour and soak on your blessed assurance. You were called to praise the Lord. You were called to share of his awesome deeds. When you go to school, when you go to work, when you go to Walmart, when you go to Publix, when you go to the park, you should never get over that he called you out of darkness into his marvelous light because you have seen the light. Once you were not a people, but now you're God's people. Once you did not receive mercy, now you've received it. Wow. Holy cow. Martin Luther put it this way. He said, a Christian is somebody who gets up every day and says, Lord, you are my goodness and I am your punishment you took everything I deserve, and now I get everything you deserve. Wow, what a God. But he's not done. Verse 11, he not only cares about what we say, but he also cares about what we do. Verse 11, now I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of your flesh. We're going to unpack that more as the series progresses, which weighs wars against your soul. He basically says, stop living like a heathen. Don't live in immorality. Keep your conduct. He's very concerned about the word conduct because the word conduct is found 13 times in the New Testament, and Peter uses that word eight times in 1 Peter. Peter is concerned about how we live our lives. He says, keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable so that when they speak, as you, speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. Live differently. Because when you live differently, they can say what they want to say, but it don't matter. Now, a lot of Christians think that living holy is separation from the world, being sanitized, avoiding conduct with other, uh, contact with other people, that so many Christians live in a Christian bubble. But what he means here is that this type of living is living like Jesus, who was a friend of sinners. He entered into sinner's pain. He touched lepers. He ate with prostitutes and sinners. Holy living is not isolation, but it's contact without contamination. We are called to live like Jesus in the world so that unbelievers glorify God. All right, I got to hurry up. Gospel community with a holy calling built on Christ, the cornerstone. Verses four through seven, Peter tells us that we are living stones built on the cornerstone. Those of you that are not building inclined, you need to understand the cornerstone is what frames a building. Our church has a cornerstone. 
It's what sets the lines, what holds the structure together. It's very important. I mean, any of you that have, anybody that lately who has bought a house, and God bless you here in Naples, <laughs> one of the things that you look at is the foundation, right? You look at the fountain, the foundation is important. And so Peter says that if you are a Christian, your foundation is Jesus. We are a spiritual life-giving house, a holy royal priesthood, a new and chosen race, a nation, a treasured possession because of Jesus. This is only possible if your life is built on Jesus. And he's going to quote Isaiah 28, verse 16, that says, whoever believes in Christ, that is, makes Christ their foundation, will not be put to shame. Those who come to Jesus by faith will not be put to shame. At the final day, whoever is built on Christ will not crumble. They may be shamed in the world, but we will not be shamed in the world to come because we are kings and priests. We are royal. Jesus told a parable, Matthew 7. Wise man, foolish man. Y'all know this story? Wise man built his house upon the rock. Foolish man built his house upon the sand. The foolish man that built his house upon the sand, when the winds and waves came, guess what happens? His house came down didn't hold up. But when the wise man who built his house upon the rock, when the winds and waves came, what happened? It stood. Jesus is saying, whatever your foundation is, is the most important thing in your life. You can have the best building. You can have the biggest building. You can have what you think is the strongest building. But if you don't have the right foundation, it's not going to last. Everyone in this room and everyone watching on live has a foundation. Everyone has a cornerstone. Everyone has something that they build their life on, and everybody has something they build their identity in. And anything that you make your cornerstone besides Jesus will lead to a faulty, unstable building. It will evaporate, it will crumble, and it will produce death in you, not life. It won't hold you up. And, it, and here's what happens. that When your life falls apart, then you're just going to crumble. If your cornerstone or your identity is in your beauty or career or financial strength or possessions or family or physical strength or physical health or position or power, what happens when that falls apart? Because if you build your life on that, it is sand. It's a terrible sound. It is a terrible foundation. And when the quake comes and your foundation is shaken, any other foundation other than Jesus will not hold you up. And that's why he says in verse 8, we didn't have time to unpack it all. Those who reject Jesus as the cornerstone will see him as a stumbling stone. Those who do not put their hope and trust in Jesus alone will be crushed by that stone they rejected. One day, if you have not built your life on Christ, the stone that you have rejected will one day reject you. Hear me now. There is no refuge from him. There's only refuge in him. So if you're a Christian, you're part of a gospel community with a holy calling built on Christ, the cornerstone. The most important thing What's even greater than the gospel community, what's greater than the holy calling, is you better be built on the rock. Does that make sense? 
See, in early life, you're searching for identity. In middle life, you think you find it. And in later life, you do everything you can to hold on to it. There's only one identity that you'll never lose. Christian. All other identities, you just think about it. You know, when you, go up, when you come up to meet somebody for the first time, normally one of the questions, the first questions you'll ask them is an identity question. What's your name? What's your education? What do you do for a living? Normally, one of the first questions we ask is, what do you do for a living? Why? Because that's who we are. We are what we do. Or we are who we're married to. Or we are how many kids we have. Or our education. And here's, all those things fade. They change. They die over time. The only identity that never changes is Jesus. I'll end with this. In Afghanistan, they're right now pre what just happened. They're around 20,000 Christians. Afghanistan is one of the fastest growing Christian populations in the world percentage wise. The second to the, the nation of Iran. And so in 19, pardon me, in 2019, the Afghani believers, because their numbers were growing, agreed to do something. Their leadership came together, the churches, the house churches came together, and they decided to do something radical. In a nation that is 99.9% Muslim, they decided on their national ID cards that all Afghanis are supposed to wear or carry, they would put for the first time their identity not as Muslim, but as Christian. They were asked, why did you do that? You know what you just did. And here's what they said. We want our children and future generations to be able to publicly, publicly own a Christian identity. And they knew when they put that on the card that they could be kidnapped, they could be tortured, they could be abused, they could be killed for leaving Islam and converting to Christianity. I could tell you story after story that that's a real thing. That's 2019. Fast forward to 2021. Taliban now rules Afghanistan. All the national identification information is now in the hands of radical Islamic people. And now those same Christians are being hunted down like dogs. Here's what one said in hiding. We've seen the Taliban in the past. We know what they do. We may not know why things happen to us or in the world, but we know that God knows why. We trust the sovereign God of the universe, who's also our heavenly father. We will stand strong. How can they do that? Because they can say this. My hope is built on nothing else and nothing less than Jesus' blood and righteousness. I dare not trust the sweetest thing, but wholly lean 
on Jesus' name. On Christ the solid rock I stand. All other ground is sinking sand. Is that you? Because here's what you have to understand. Your whole world can crumble and fall, but you don't have to. Because if your life is built on Jesus, he holds you up. He's your identity, not anybody else, not anything else, him alone. And so my question, have you built your life on Jesus or is it built on sinking sand? If you've not built your life on Jesus, build it on him today. Maybe you need to today surrender your life to Jesus and trust him as savior. Maybe you today need to be like those Afghanis and publicly identify with Jesus through baptism. Saying, I'm not ashamed. And here's the thing. You don't have to go in hiding here. Not yet anyway. Or maybe you just need to find your identity in Jesus and not what your wife says about you or your husband or what your parents say or what anybody else says. You find your identity in him. Father, in Jesus' name, thank you. Thank you for him. Thank you for Jesus. Thank you for the gospel. And thank you that my hope is built on you. And I praise you for that. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's all stand and let's sing about the cornerstone.